Today on Dance Med Spotlight, I talk with Dr. Jatina Ambegankar, who is heavily involved in the research world related to dance. We talk about his journey, his background, getting involved in this area, some of the work that he has been involved in with his laboratory, a new textbook involved in the Journal of Dance Medicine and Science, lots of different touch points for him being involved in this research and helping others with their research. The biggest thing that we talk about is how we do research on a regular basis as dancers, people in the dance community, providers, practitioners, whoever the case may be. So we don't need to be afraid of research, whether that is getting involved in doing the research or going and reading the research, whatever it is, research can be a fun and fascinating thing to be involved in whatever way it is that we want to be involved. So be sure to check out this episode. It's a great conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Dance Med Spotlight, where we talk about all things dance medicine. Today, I am super excited about my guest, Dr. Jatin Ambegankar, who is a professor in the School of Kinesiology at George Mason University, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Dance Medicine and Science, involved in International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, uh, co-editor of a book. We're going to talk about all kinds of different things today. But first, welcome, Jatin. Well, thank you for having me, Alyssa. It has been great to uh, know you, and I'm excited to see what kind of conversation we can have to spread the word about dance, medicine, and science for the people who are interested in this kind of work, maybe have done some work, maybe are thinking about doing some work, and hopefully our conversation gives them some encouragement to start thinking more critically as scientists potentially uh, and advance the field. Yeah, wonderful. Let's first talk a bit about you and some of your professional backgrounds. Tell me sure. a bit about what all is in there, because I know there's quite the mix. <laughs> so from an educational perspective, uh, my undergraduate degree was in occupational therapy. And then I worked with uh, 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 the Paraplegic Foundation, started working with some sports kind of uh, for uh, specially adapted populations, recognized that I want to learn more about sports medicine, athletic training perspectives. So then I did my graduate work and my doctoral work in uh, uh, athletic training, sports medicine. Uh, while I was doing my doctoral work, that's when I entered dance medicine. I was in charge of opening up a collegiate-based dance uh, studios, rehab, wellness, prevention, intervention kind of facility for collegiate dancers at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And... Uh, in 2006, I moved into my current role as a faculty member at George Mason in the athletic training kinesiology program as a clinical coordinator of that program and uh, uh, collaborated with colleagues over in the School of Dance. Similarly, started a dance medicine program for dancers there, uh, but then expanded from a graduate assistantship to a full-time athletic trainer uh, with community partners taking care of the dancers and enjoyed working with the population, enjoyed learning more from them than I was teaching them and just uh, getting my curiosity uh, uh, spiked uh, to learn 
how to help them perform better and not you know go down a negative injury kind of pathway so that's what i've been doing for the last 20 years now and uh, met some great people along the way and hopefully continue to meet some more and grow i love what you said about continuing to learn from them also because i think it's so true you know even growing up as a dancer and dancing my whole life still dancing and competing i'm still constantly learning from the dancers who come in whether it's you know, new tricks and techniques and things or a style that I'm not familiar with or, you know, whatever it is, it's like you can never know it all. And so it's it's great to learn from them. No, I absolutely agree. And I think that's, that's one of the most fun parts about this area of work, right? Because dancers are among and performing artists are among those groups who test the limits of the human body, uh, uh, keeping the aesthetics in in the forefront also so to learn and see how they do the work that they do that is beautiful to look at yet physically and mentally challenging and try to understand that's i think what piques me uh because uh, mm -hmm. it's not one thing it's not just the flexibility or just the strength it's the mental component the psychological component and the physical component that that combines and i'm always intrigued uh, as to how science and scientific technology as we are advancing can a look at it analyze what's going on and find b find ways to further improve uh, those things uh, and so that's been exciting for me and mm -hmm. i hope um, i am able to work even in the future uh, and learn and hopefully teach uh, so it should be a back and forth process it's not a top down, it's a collaborative process. And that's what keeps it exciting. Most definitely. I know you're also the founding co-director of the Smart Lab Sports Medicine Assessment Research and Testing. Sure. Tell us about what your work is there. Sure. So uh, again, this was in 2006, where I came to George Mason, where really the program was a athletic training program was a newer program and there was no dedicated space for faculty to do work in the area of performing arts slash sports medicine and so uh, me and a colleague uh, started uh, the laboratory and the idea of the laboratory is really being an intellectual enterprise uh, not necessarily just a physical lab there is a there is a physical lab and there are two locations of the laboratory one is what we call the research heavy portion where there is uh, equipment and uh, instrumentations all the way from 3D biomotion bio system to EMG to other toys in research perspective that we could play with and analyze the body. But then there is another location which we call the community facing location where we provide clients services in the community. And then there is a whole part of the lab where we take the lab out in the community itself. So the work is done in the community. Uh, and the idea of the of the mission and the vision of the lab writ large is to really improve performance for people using physical activity across the lifespan. So how to engage people all the way from uh, a child who is getting a concussion or is suffering from potentially going down the obesity path. How can we use physical activity as an or means to help them get better all the way from there to an athletic population and a special physically active population, including 
performing artist. That's something that I work with. But I have colleagues who work with tactical athletes. Those are law enforcement, mm -hmm. military athletes. That's another line of work. And then using the same kind of physical activity in the older adult population, uh, using arts and dance in the older adult population to decrease and prevent false risk and decrease mental uh, declines uh, from multiple aging-related natural processes and pathological processes. So it's a pretty broad kind of lifespan approach we take uh, and multiple faculty members now work with doctoral students and masters and undergraduate students uh, with the uniting idea being how to use physical activity to improve health across the lifespan. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Being able to touch in so many different ways and even thinking, you know, we when we're already involved within the dance space, we think about all of the stats of how often dancers are injured or, you know, things like that. But we sometimes forget that there is that other side of dance for health absolutely, and how it can be involved to help people who aren't dancers, mm -hmm. but use it as an activity opportunity for things like balance and strength and coordination and all of these other things. Tell us a little bit more about this idea of dance for health versus what we traditionally think of as dance medicine or science. Sure. So I think it's almost like I think about like a combined diagram, right? So it's arts for health and health for artists, right? So it's 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 not necessarily one is uh, different from each other from the way we perceive it, right? We perceive it to be interlinked to each other. And the research clearly suggests that a performing arts, dance, uh, moving, music, all of those engage the physical and the mind, uh, physical part of the body and the mind itself. So uh, what we oftentimes forget on a day-to-day -day basis is that dance is a movement activity that is a cultural activity that originated in cultures and societies. And yes, we now work oftentimes with people who identify with themselves as primarily being dancers and performing artists, but dance is embedded in the fabric of society, right? So whether it's dancing of quinceaneras, whether it's dancing in weddings, whether it's uh, a community celebration, right? So dance is broader and bigger and a lot of people enjoy the social aspect of dance and that is why people engage with dance. Uh, even if they're not necessarily performers, right? Uh, they they do dance. And so the idea is to use that natural connection that dance creates with people and among people and help them see that this is also a form of activity that can help improve physical and mental health. So that's the way to conceptualize it, right? So it's not necessarily... Mm -hmm that you're working with a specific group of dancers who are professional or collegiate or recreational dancers. It's everybody can dance, right? Yes. Everybody can dance. Everybody can move. Not everybody's going to get paid potentially to dance, but that's okay, right? Uh, but everybody should dance because I know a lot of your listeners will say there is, there is joy to be found in dancing. Uh, and not all dance needs to be performance-based. It's connecting with people. Uh, and so if we use that perspective, even if they are not jumping and making these leaps that are spellbounding, but they're linking hands 
and dancing working up a good sweat and feeling good at the end of the day well it's definitely worth it and so yes. that's how we want to maybe think about dance and yeah can we get some of them to get even better absolutely and we should definitely work on that so that they don't overwork themselves and get further injured uh but as people learn new dance genres as people get exposed to new dance styles there is a learning curve and how can we get them also to start enjoying different forms of dance and get them excited to learn and keep dancing as they age across the lifespan so that's the idea for dance mm-hmm. for health so we're not really looking at dance as necessarily only a way to improve people with injuries or pathologies but it's using dance as a form of activity that engages the body mind and spirit continuously mm-hmm. that's awesome and yes dance is something that is so incredibly ingrained in us you know seeing even babies move to music or you know whatever it is it's it's just part of the human experience in some form so it's important that we think about it from all of those different perspectives too not just the beautiful performer on stage in front of thousands at the royal ballet or something yep. like that <laughs> and that is beautiful right but there is a value for dance for health right how can we dance used as a way to improve physical and mental health and so yes. that's 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 i think i think the more we can talk about that as a society and again covid has clearly shown us the value of social connections and the challenges of mental health that have increasingly become important for us as a society mm-hmm. uh, dance is a way that we can work to help mitigate some of those uh negative effects of you know loneliness isolation uh, and uh, we are finding that dance can really play a positive impact for that part of health uh, mm-hmm. because again we understand that health is not just physical health right it's a multidimensional concept so uh, trying to understand and use dance as a form to improve health is the, i think the big picture vision for dance for health mhm what so kind of thinking now big picture dance medicine dance science what is something that maybe is a common misperception or myth that now through research we're kind of maybe seeing something a bit different than has been the idea for a while within the community uh okay so there are two or three different thing again how much time do we have right uh, i think that's the joy of being uh, researchers uh, and the curse of being researchers right there are so many interesting topics to examine and understand from a research perspective um uh, but i'll just point out a couple of some couple of small ideas that have kind of been provided credence through research and the evidence that has been created in the recent past in the dance medicine and science field so let's take a simple act of starting to warm up in the dance studio right as as a as a as a dancer we've been talked about warm up and stretching uh that's part of the cycle of uh the day to day existence in the studio of dancer research mm-hmm. now is suggesting that the cool down is an equally and more not 
less, but maybe sometimes even more important part for the next session of Dan. So that was something that was not about 20 years ago, uh, part of the common lexicon of dance teachers uh, yes. that, you know, you, you did some warm up, you did some stretching and went into your dance training, uh, dance performance. And then when you were done, you were done and pack up and leave for the evening or the day. But I think the research is clearly suggesting that using cool down as a formal part of the dance structured session uh, really allows for more optimal recovery, uh, more help for the body to kind of slow down and the dancer to get ready for the next session. So that's a very clear kind of day-to-day -day example that the research is showing us that whether it's blood lactate removal, whether it's heart rate recovery, right? All of those things are going to help the dancer become and stay fitter and healthier uh, as they kind of return back to the next session. So uh, that's a clean example. Um, another example, again, when we talk about thinking uh, when we start thinking about dancing per se, right? We are thinking about dancing and the physical demands of dancing that require some uh, flexibility, that requires some endurance, that requires some strength, that requires some power. And so what the research is now proving consistently is outside of dance proper training, strength training or resistance resistance training or supplemental or cross training one or two times a week seems to provide protective effects and improvement in performance effects for the dancer. So that's another uh, big thing that from a dance studio perspective, what that means for dance teachers is that they really need to be thinking about outside of dance, doing some kind of strength or resistance work with their dancers. Um, and that can also be incorporated into the warm-up. So it doesn't need to be extra time. The idea is that resistance work or strength work or supplementary training work will improve the performance of your dancer. If you want them to land with that beautiful arabesque, well, recognize that they need to have good strength and power of that lower body. And using some techniques of strength and conditioning will allow your dancer to perform that better, quicker and more efficiently than somebody who is not using strength or resistance training as a part of their regular training. So those are, I think, a couple of examples that we've learned over the last 15, 20 years uh, from science and medicine that can be really immediately applied uh, to the dance teacher and the dance educator and the dancer in the studio. Yes, and those are both, I mean, again, growing up as a dancer, both of those were sort of a foreign concept to me because it was not, it wasn't part of the culture. And, you know, even now, one of the styles that I dance is West Coast Swing, and it's a lot of adults who go out and it's, you know, for a lot of people, it may be more of kind of a hobby of something they do. And then some take it more seriously, mm -hmm. really get into competition and performance and want to become professionals at it. But I can't tell you how often when I'm in the lineup waiting to go compete, I am 
often the only one in line, like doing squats and heel raises and, you know, all of these things before <laughs> going out there. And everyone's looking at me like, what are you doing? It's like, no, trust me, it would help all of you if we, if we did this beforehand. No, um, absolutely. So and I'm I think that's that, myself. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's, I think, something that came to us from ice hockey literature, in fact, or from a historical perspective, right? That uh, when you're out when you're not playing ice hockey, you don't want to sit, you get cooled down. So you want to keep moving, keep your body active, keep your body ready. And that allows you to perform better. So I'm glad you're using it. And uh, I am I hope you are role modeling it for your fellow competitors as you start ready to uh, get ready to take on uh, the next performance because it really helps them get better for the next performance. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I know last year uh, a new textbook came out that you were co-editor of, Research Methods in Dance Sciences. Tell me about what this is and why people should check it out. Absolutely. So firstly, it, it's exciting to have this book out. It's been a labor of love. I think it, it, the idea of the book came about 10 to 12 years ago. Uh, where it was an understanding with Dr. Tom Welch, who's one of the co-editors of the book, uh, to really, for the first time, try to codify all the research methodology in the dance medicine and science world. So this is among the first textbooks in the field. And then uh, uh, as part of the IADAMS, the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, I was chair of the research committee, and that's how I got involved with this process about six years ago. And then it took about four to five years for it to progress from an idea to a book proposal to getting together 25 to 26 uh, world-renowned experts for across across the globe uh, and marshalling the uh, strength of the knowledge that they brought to the field. Uh, and what we really, really tried to do was to create a book that was approachable, uh, that had very limited technical jargon obviously some jargon is necessary when you talk about research so you can clarify the processes but the idea was always using the dancer and the dance teacher and their perspective and keeping that at the forefront uh, and so what we've done very deliberately and consistently across the textbook is to talk about research as being very approachable and oftentimes already being done concept in the dance studio. So as a teacher is teaching a dancer a new technique or a new skill, they're already doing the research to understand and figure out the different methods they use. So that's different styles they use from a research perspective. Uh, when they choose different dancers to perform different parts of a choreography, again, they're doing research using the existing strengths and abilities of that dancer to create a part that is optimized for them. And so what we have tried to do in the book is really to make research an approachable and exciting area of work. Uh, because oftentimes, as we heard from the dancers, and we have several dance educators and some dance professionals and dance healthcare providers. So we have a multidisciplinary team who collaborated on the textbook. So we are really trying to use the dancer keeping the dancer at the center and the dance performance in the center and trying to understand from different multidisciplinary perspectives of how we can help the dancer get better and how we can help them decrease their injury risk so if you wanted to examine them what would the research techniques be 
to examine what was going well and not going well how can a dancer think about it from a scientific perspective and then once you figure that out if you wanted to tweak something and make something better or decrease the risk for injury what are some other ways that a dancer can use from a research perspective create some clear pathways to design a research project to examine that question and then the answer that come out of the research project how to interpret those how to analyze those and more and more importantly most importantly i would say how to interpret and disseminate and talk about it and incorporate there in their practice so i think that was the idea that we wanted to do that it had to be very clear to the dancer who may not ever have had a research class or had a research class in high school maybe if that Uh, mm-hmm. and was excited as a practitioner and wanted to get involved with research and so the book really tries uh, to bring people into the process of research get them excited about different ways and we have different examples uh, in most chapters about how this concept that is in each chapter can be applied for dance practice uh, a couple of chapters we have interviews from people across the world all the way from australia uh, to the us to the uk uh, and really try to understand how they have incorporated research into their practice and how that has been successful mm-hmm. uh, and so i think the whole point is to make research not a foreign concept for the reader but rather as a tool that they can use to improve their and their dancers performance mm-hmm. I really like that perspective and even having the textbook including all of those different perspectives within it to help uh share the information and the process and all of that because you know I think sometimes when people think of scientific research it's either you know big fancy lab and you know hundreds and of people that are coming through and years and years of collecting data and that kind of thing but sometimes it's easy to forget or if you haven't been involved in research in any way that it can be something in the community in the classroom with a single dancer that there's not one way to be involved in collecting data generating the ideas and going from there i think you hit the nail on the head right i think that's what we were trying to do that we talk about in there are a couple of chapters which really talk about the different types of research and the idea is that one type of research is not better or worse than another type of research it depends on what the question that we want to answer is so if it's a question that is very local and very related to a dancer or a small group of dancers well then the research design of that study needs by definition to be small and defined and clear if it's a larger broader question that we are answering well then the research project needs to be more broader and more bigger uh, mm-hmm. so i think i i think what we have tried to do in this book again and i try to tell this to my students and as we get from the journal's perspective different uh, different varieties of manuscripts right we try to really talk about each manuscript is valuable because it contributes to the value in the literature is there a hierarchy of the strength of the research process absolutely 
-hmm. but there is no hierarchy of the questions that are being asked and each question can be examined in a rigorous manner or a non rigorous manner and it has little to do with the size or the technical expertise and the lab equipment that is required most research that is good quality need not have sophisticated equipment if it is based in the community if it's based in the studio can it have i i have a lab i work in the lab with sophisticated equipment and i love using it and i will love using it but that's for a specific question or a specific set of questions mm-hmm. and the value of that is important and it needs to stay there and then there is another set of questions that don't need that kind of equipment and the value of that information is equally as important as the prior one where we are really using sophisticated equipment yeah it makes me think of one of the presentations that i went to actually this last year at the i adams conference it was a session done by adel quinn talking about irish dancers and mm-hmm. even thinking about you know sometimes we do have some of this cool equipment that we can use but using it in a laboratory setting is it necessarily comparable to sort of the dancer in the wild and so she was able to come up with an idea with her team of being able to monitor things like heart rate in the dancers while they're performing in river dance as opposed to just here do some jumps and things in the lab space with this big bulky equipment that you would never have attached to yourself as a dancer so are we really you know comparing information correctly um and so you know seeing her research on that project was really interesting to me going oh yeah sometimes we have to get a little creative so that we are truly looking at how the dancers are performing or whatever it is that we're looking at um versus sort of this contrived situation in a lab space that might not be comparable yeah you are you are again absolutely right so there is this concept in research and i'm going to get pedantic for just a second it's the inductive and deductive research right so one research work emanates really from the ground right so you're as a dance teacher you're looking at something that is happening to the dancer and you're trying to understand what is it happening why is it happening and then you put tools uh, by your sensors for example uh, you know you put some apple watches as simple as that right uh, mm-hmm. a lot of us now have smart watches that can capture heart rates um, so that's a type of an research which is really grounded in the field in the field in this case being the studio uh that has got really very little to do with a lab setting because it's real whatever is happening is real it's natural it's ecological was it going to get another technical word but that really means it's as a researcher you are not interfering with what is actually going on with the dance itself you are at that point observing what the dancer and the dance or the dancers are doing and trying to understand why some dancers are doing this better or not and trying to think about how they can do it better the other type of work is what we will call lab based research where really you've seen this and you recognize that there are these five different things that could be potentially going wrong or going right right and then in the lab you isolate one of these things 
and try to control for four of these things and then try to see whether causing a change in one of those things can improve the performance. So I'll give you an example. And when we talk about, say, we have dancer A or B and B and one's a principal and one's uh, uh, who's not a principal. And we are trying to understand as a teacher, why is this this principal dancer look so pretty when she jumps? Right. And as a novice, why does a novice not look as pretty when she jumps? So then as a dance teacher, you're thinking, okay, maybe they cannot jump higher. Maybe they cannot jump faster. Maybe their back foot doesn't extend as much as the front foot does. Now we have three questions and we go back to the lab. And now we put a project through where we have a dancer who can jump well and a dancer who cannot. You can have somebody who can extend their back leg and who cannot, right? And so now you've taken out of the dance studio. If you come to the lab, use some sophisticated 3D motion biomechanical analysis equipment to really see which of these three things allows that dancer to perform better. Mm -hmm. And so now you've taken that experiment and brought it back into the lab, try to analyze systematically and research using science and try to think about which of these three things are the things that contribute the most to that principle looking better. Then bring that back again to the dance studio and put it in play with that novice dancer and say we find that it is that their length of their back leg extension is what makes it happen. Well, let's, let's work on that back leg extension and not worry about the height of the jump. So the training will then be focused. The intervention in scientific perspective then from the dance teacher will be focused in working the back leg extension. And now we have created somebody who was optimizing their performance and getting better. So it's always this back and forth play uh, that we need to think about. One is not worse than the other. There are different tools that we should be thinking about as scientists, as researchers, as educators, as answers and using them. And so then from that perspective, from a physical therapy athletic training perspective, that teacher needs to talk to the athletic trainer or the PT and tell her, him or her, okay, let's work on the back extension and the balance and not necessarily having them jump higher in the therapy room. And mm -hmm. so now we are really talking about different people in the team trying to understand the question about what makes a dancer look better and trying to, from biomechanical perspective and a rehabilitation perspective work towards making that novice dancer get better. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to highlight that you mentioned there that I have found to be a wonderful theme in all of the discussions that I've had so far for some of these podcast episodes is this concept of a team working with dancers. It's not just me as a physical therapist. It's not just their dance teacher. It's not just whomever, but thinking of all of these different people who can contribute to education and training and safety and all of these different things to help the dancers stay safe, to help them improve their performance. There's so much value in creating whatever team it is. Um, and even looking at research, there are things like that with say professional ballet companies who include a wellness program that is multidisciplinary and looking at the decrease in injuries that happen after mm -hmm. they've had that implemented within their program. Um, I think that's a really important concept 
for the dance community to be aware of. And I think sometimes is maybe a bit easier to think of for, say, a professional company or maybe university-based dance teams or something like that, but isn't so much thought of in the dance studio space for dancers in training who are growing up and wanting to be dancers, professional dancers in the future. No, I think you're absolutely right again. I mean, it has to be a multi-team, multi-personnel approach, right? Because all of us exist not in a vacuum, right? All of us exist in some connection with another. And I think from a dance medicine perspective, I think thinking about keeping the dancer at the center and all of the people that help that dancer get better around the sides and supporting that dancer getting better is a very valuable idea to even think about conceptually because different people bring different strengths to the table and different people learn and grow and therefore with their strengths can help the dancer get better. So I'll give you an example of what I just talked about, right? So uh, this actually did happen with uh, one of the dance dancers at our uh, department where uh, the dancers really had some hamstring issues. That's the back of the thigh kind of uh, uh, recurrent pain and was having this recurrent issue uh, and the dance teacher noticed it and contacted the athletic trainer and then the athletic trainer tried to analyze and understand what was going on. And then she, as a practitioner, then connected with me as the researcher. And then we tried to understand what was going on and we did some work and found out that really it was not necessarily coming from the distal part, which is the lower part of the hamstring, but was coming from the back. Uh, and so when we try to intervene and provide a rehabilitation program, we didn't not work on the knee and ankle, but rather we work more on the back and the hip issues. Uh, and likewise, we talked to the dance teacher to start working on some groundwork, which included some hinges uh, for people who knew who know what I'm talking about, some hinge work that strengthened that dancer's back and hip and core musculature. And that seems to seem to create a much more beneficial effect than just looking at the knee and the hamstring because it wasn't that the hamstring was an end result of some movement dysfunction that was occurring at the back level. And so we used that chain to help. So we had the dancer at the center, the dance teacher who identified the issue, the athletic trainer at physical therapy group who identify from a functional perspective, what was going on, the researcher where we looked at trying to exactly see from a biomechanical perspective what was going on. And that information again fed back into the rehabilitation program, which fed back into the dance studio, again, improved the dancer's performance. So, so it had to be a team approach. It had to be a process where one group of people looked at this dancer, shared that information to the next shared that information to the next person in the team and really talked about how to get this dancer perform better because that was the end goal to help mm -hmm. the dancer perform better. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes if we think that it is a import, it's an important step, but oftentimes we think that it is not important enough to talk to all these people. And that's where we have problems in the chain. 
and the dancer doesn't know what she wants to be getting out of this process the dance teacher doesn't know what their role is uh, the practitioner doesn't know what his or her role is the researcher is trying to understand what their role is so i think that's key to have the team based approach uh, mm-hmm. and that's how it is going to allow for a smooth line of communication and information that can ultimately help the dancer mm-hmm. definitely also within that kind of train of thought thinking of some of the dance communities that maybe maybe they're in more rural areas or they're an area where there aren't really as many dance specialists or you know whomever could be a part of this team it's important to know that i think I feel like a lot of us who are involved in this space tend to want to be helpful to one another. And so, you know, if it's something where I can have a remote discussion with somebody or, you know, maybe there's a PT somewhere who has no dance background and is working with a dancer and wants some advice, you know, they can reach out to people or see if there's some connection, some education that they can provide, whatever, to kind of help create a bit of this team so that dancers don't feel like they're just over here somewhere in a little silo and can't get access to some of those folks to be able to help them. Uh, I I think that that's, that's great advice because oftentimes it's really, it's really trying to understand the language of the dancer, right? It's trying to understand, trying to, like we talked about earlier, thinking a little bit outside the box of, okay, this is not a traditional route that exists where I am, but how can I, as whatever position that I come in, whether it's an athletic trainer, whether it's a researcher, whether it's a teacher or the interventionist, we have to think about it in the perspective of what the dancer wants. And generally dancers are very willing to learn. Uh, but I think they need to know that you're there to help, right? I think that's oftentimes if we engender that trust, if we engender uh, uh, that ability for us and them to understand that we are trying to work towards the same goal, even if you are at a rural perspective where you don't have access, and I've had this oftentimes where people have contacted me uh, where they don't have access to healthcare, practitioners working with dancers and you and the sounds like have done the exact same thing. Yeah, we are very willing to talk, right? It just, just talk, just ask. And if I don't know somebody, I'll find somebody who knows somebody uh, and we can get that knowledge across. But I think oftentimes we don't try to think that there is somebody who can help because we haven't reached out. And I think uh, out of the many Bad things that have come out of COVID, this actually has been one of the positive things that the ability for us to be more virtual with each other and connect outside of the geographical limits of where we used to be able to think we can get help from. Uh, COVID has shown us, the technology has shown us that we can connect like we're connecting today, right? In a virtual space, we are not physically uh, closed, geographically closed, but we can still stay connected and have conversation, have discussions and grow and learn. And I think for any of your listeners who are out there and think they are in a place where they don't have a specialist next door or even in the same town, reach out. There are resources available. The IADAMS has great resource site. Uh, the Physical Therapy Association has, uh, the APTA has a, a whole special interest uh, section that works with performing and artists. Multiple associations, the NAT Athletic Training Association has 
performing arts uh, subgroup. So a lot of associations, professional and in the field have started to recognize and value the need for dance, science mm-hmm. and medicine as an inherent part of the dancer's journey and career. And there are more resources than you think. It's, again, thinking outside and reaching out. Uh, uh, that is, I think, if your readers and listeners can hear more, reach out. It's okay. Most people are willing to talk and mm-hmm. help as much as they can. Definitely. And one great resource is also looking at the Journal of Dance Science and Medicine, because there are all kinds of things in there to be able to go and learn about from many different perspectives of different professionals and different styles of dance and all kinds of different things. So that's a wonderful place to get some good information as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, uh, the Journal of Dance Ma- Science, Dance Medicine and Science is the official journal of the organization. It's uh, one of the only uh, two organizational based article, journal article compendiums that performer, artist and dancer specific uh, in the world. And we are very proud. I'm proud to lead again a group of uh, fantastic scholars from across the world Um And again, our idea is to help dance medicine and science research find a space and a place. Uh, We are encouraging of all different types of uh, work that is inclusive, again, with the dancer being at the center, uh, the performing artist being at the center. uh, And we accept all types of publication options all the way from systematic reviews to case studies to original research articles from quantitative to qualitative work because again the way we look at it is all of this work is very new for dancers and dance medicine and science uh, and there's a value and the need for the evidence base to be generated and created so that's what we've been trying to do uh, we use a multidisciplinary lens here also, um, and uh, we have done some work over the last few years to bring the journal in tune with the modern publication standards that is included now, uh, making the journal online. We have initiated social media outreach for the journal. Uh, We have initiated an online subscription manuscript submission process. We've initiated a a fast track or an online first kind of model where people can get access to the journal articles earlier. And we are trying to speed up the process of working through the peer review of manuscripts. So all all those are exciting new changes for the journal and for the field because we are recognizing the value of quick not not rigorous but expedient processing of information making sure that it meets the standard that it can be disseminated because we believe that everything that we do should be able to be translated and have practical implications. So that's some of the work that we've done. So now with most of our journal submissions, we have a subsections where we ask authors to talk about the practical implications, which was not a case in the past, because all of the research 
needs to be able to be applied in some way maybe not directly right some of the research is what we call foundational basic research and that's perfectly fine as we talked earlier there is a place for that kind of work but then we ask then the authors to talk about how that research has implications indirectly or applications directly to dancers teachers educators and practitioners mm-hmm. at this point i think it's a good opportunity for us to do a special segment that I have on the show. We have the final bow. It's basically your opportunity. If there is one thing that you want people who have listened to this episode to leave with, what is the take home message? The take home message is that research is fun research is doable and research is important whether we do it or not is secondary as a teacher as a dancer as a practitioner you are doing research every day of your practice so think about your identity embrace the process of research find resources find people who are excited and willing to do it and by doing that you are creating a better dancer and a better you by learning and growing i love it is there anything that you want to do a shameless plug for for yourself something that you're involved in something that people should be checking out this is your chance to share it <laughs> sure so i'll share a couple of quick things the research methods in dance sciences textbook i think it just came out in january february 2023 so very new and as the time of this recording so please please it's on amazon uh, it's available uh, it's by dr tom welch myself jatin ambegaokar and dr linda mainring mainwearing uh, please review it work with the journal of dance medicine and science which is now excited published by sage publishers who are uh, uh one of the top 5 publishers in the world so we're excited to have that platform so read the journal uh read the book and then finally uh, at george mason we host the share consortium which stands for supporting healthy arts research where it is a think tank area where we get people who are interested in dance medicine and science to think about ideas big picture ideas about how we can improve dancer health so if you need to have some questions you need to get answers reach out to me uh, i'm sure my information is going to be uh, embedded within uh, the show notes so reach out to me i'm glad to help i'm glad to talk the more i learn the more you learn the more we help and get dancers feeling better and performing longer productive careers thank you jatin for being a guest for me on the show i've enjoyed our conversation today and we'll be sure to share all of your information so they can find all of that good stuff that they want to get involved in. Thank you, Alyssa. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. And hopefully you have many more successful episodes, get some great minds uh, to talk about things that are everything dance and dance medicine and science. So thank you for the opportunity. Dance Med Spotlight is hosted and produced by Alyssa Arms. We discuss all things dance medicine. This has been another episode from Dance Med Spotlight. 
The Dance Med Spotlight is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present.